This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, conversations with people we're calling peace elders, all well into their 80s, all still very active in their peace work. We'll meet an 86-year-old woman who lives below the taxable income line so as not to contribute to military budgets. We devour each other. And I think it has to stop somewhere. And at least I hope it's going to stop with me. I'm not going to do it. Also an 87-year-old doctor still advocating for the cause that won him a Nobel Peace Prize. We and the Russians were in the same boat. If a hole in the boat developed on his side of the boat, you better bail. And an 83-year-old lifelong activist putting her passion for peace to poetry and song. Together we must struggle on and love each other too. All today on Peace Talks Radio. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today, whether it's the search for personal peace or learning how to reduce conflict nonviolently with others in our homes, workplaces, communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, we visit with three octogenarian peace activists who have each found ways to stay active, working for peace well into their 80s. They each bring the perspective of over eight decades of history to the table as they crusade in their own way for nonviolence today. First, we'll visit with Juanita Moro Nelson. In the mid-1940s, Juanita Moro was a young reporter for a Cleveland African-American newspaper. She was assigned to interview several conscientious objectors who were in jail awaiting appeal of their five-year sentence for refusing military service in World War II because they didn't feel they should be required to kill. Ms. Morrow became intrigued with one of the men. His name was Wally Nelson. And not long after Nelson was released in 1946, after serving 33 months of his sentence, he and Juanita began a relationship that was built around their common commitment to nonviolence in all parts of their lives. The Nelsons were among the first to take the step of refusing to pay taxes to the government because they did not want their tax dollars to go to military spending. For decades, they lived simply below the taxable income line and were active in civil rights and social justice movements. Wally Nelson died in 2002 at the age of 93. Juanita Nelson, 85 at the time of our interview, was continuing on her own, living in the house she and Wally Nelson built together from salvaged material. No electricity, no plumbing, growing their own food on a small tract of land in western Massachusetts. Juanita Nelson came to a nearby conference center in Deerfield, Massachusetts, to talk with us. She recalled the beginnings of her life with Wally Nelson for our interviewer, Carol Boss. I would say that meeting Wally was life-changing for me because um, I was using nonviolence as a tactic, and I wasn't a warmonger, but I just never had thought about the deeper implications of it. Can you talk a little bit more also about why it was important for the two of you to um, change your life in that way so that um, you would not be having to pay taxes? Yes. It would have been worse for us to pay taxes for somebody else to go and, and commit murder than to do it ourselves even. 
it just doesn't make sense for him to be in for all that time and then then to go and pay for that very thing that he refused to do. It 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 didn't add up it didn't, for for us anyway. And then that led us to various and sundry things, and that was in '48. But the one reason that was life changing too was that in '48, a group, this group called Peacemakers, was formed, which saw nonviolence as a way of life, which said something about something like um, one person living according to deeply held beliefs can begin in a small, though not insignificant, way to change the world. But I have always believed in direct action in any case. That if you believe in something. You do it. You don't go petitioning the government. I have to do it. What What is it that uh, this Pogo says? I have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. So that's what I really do believe. I don't have to have what everybody else thinks we have to have. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about writing a sort of a memoir and of, of Wally and me, and I would, we would call I would call it uh, from rags to rags because both of us were born very poor. We never had very much. And, of course, some people would say, well, you didn't have much to give up. But uh, my experience is that people who don't have anything strive very hard to get something, you know. But material things have never meant very much to me. Describe your house for us. <laughs> the house we, we built, we took down a house in order to get the, most of the material that we used. We, of course, had to buy some. We have one large room that is um, 16 by 24, which is a sort of our kitchen and our living room and um, all sorts of things. We have a very small bedroom upstairs, which was unintentional, but it seemed, but because of the design of the house, we had that. I have two gas lights in the main room. There are no lights in any of the other room, no electricity. We have... Probably the only sanctioned outhouse in our county, I suppose. I don't know. No plumbing. Juanita, how would you respond to people who who might say they admire what you do but just couldn't go to what they would call that extreme? And, you know, maybe they've wanted to have a family and a career, and that involves accepting wages and paying taxes that might go to war. Is there a middle ground of sorts? What can you suggest to people who do share a lot of your values, but can't quite do it that way. I wouldn't say can't, won't do it that way. That's up to them. What I think is that if you are determined to do something, you can do it, but it's according to what you want. In the first place, how do you know you can't do it if you don't try? Uh, some of the people that I know, they have, they have, they have families. Uh, Randy and Betsy Corner, who live here, had their house taken uh, by the IRS, and they had a nine-year-old daughter, but they did it. They st- they don't pay taxes because their daughter is now grown up and married, but and and doesn't agree with them. But <laughs> or at least I mean I think she thinks that what they are doing is all right, but she would never do it. I think what comes first. If you decide to do something, you'll find a way to do it. If you try to figure out how am I going to do this, you probably would never move. I th- I think you're right about that. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And what there, somebody said something, I wish I could quote this, uh, it's attributed to, to Goethe, saying that, you know, whatever you can dream of, do it, and then possibly all sorts of things will happen. But one reason I can't understand this is people go to war, and they know they might just get killed. Not only kill other people, they'll get killed, but they go to war. 
so why can't you <laughs> what's the what's the risk in living more simply and and you know trusting in that something will happen i don't understand what is risk i would rather go to jail than go to war if I, if even if i weren't a, a pacifist you know i would be shut up but i wouldn't be in danger not not only of killing other people but i might get killed or maimed myself what is risk people have different ideas of what risk is i think Taxes go to government programs that some people think of as helpful to society, but it, it sounds like, and tell me if this is true or not, you wouldn't believe in paying taxes even if there was no military spending. I, I have come to that degree. What I think is that I can support things that I believe in. First of all, a lot of the taxes go to help poor people, and I don't believe in poor people. You know, I don't believe in poverty. I would say everybody should get the same amount. People who do the hardest work get paid the least and the most dull work, without which you couldn't, we couldn't live. My father worked in a steel mill, and he drove a truck. He got very little pay. But somebody had to do those. How do we say this? some, some people should make millions and some people should um, make nothing? The workers, that's almost an epithet to say he's a, a mere worker. And uh, so I guess I just believe in more, much more equality than what we have. Do you think there should be government support for health care? Well, why do we have to have government support for health care? Because some people can't pay it, right? If everybody had the same amount of money, we could all pay for it if we wanted to, and, 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 and the health workers wouldn't make any more than other, anybody else. That's the way it seems to me anyway, you know. Do you believe any country should maintain a military force purely for self-defense? <laughs> it goes round and round. Who's defending what? You know, if, 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 you, if you hit me, and then I hit you, and then you hit me, and then, you know, and goes round and round. No, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in killing. As a matter of fact, I have to tell you this. I was just so sobered this weekend. I was at a meet at a uh, weekend where there was a little boy from Iraq whose mother was killed with a bomb. The fa- they were in a car, I guess, and the father has shrapnel all through his body trying to protect his son, this little boy. And he has a balloon in his head. They're trying to do it. He's been completely traumatized, but he is so sweet and so cute. What is the price that we pay for what we call keeping our way of life. What is the price? That child is just an example of what we do to each other. We devour each other. And I think it has to stop somewhere. And at least I hope it's going to stop with me. I'm not going to do it. Now, there are many Americans who feel threatened by terrorism and nations that they see as unfriendly to the U.S. What what would you say to them to convince them to resist supporting a military with their taxes? Well, I think we could start out first. I mean, I can't tell them I, I'm I'm in the United States. I think we ought to start. We're the we're the big people in the world. We go around brandishing. We've got military bases all over. We're the only ones who've used uh, atomic uh, weapons, and and we don't want anybody else to have them. Oh. Why are we so blessed, and why are, how are we so omnipotent? We could lead the way, I think. 
to something much better. So what keeps you going, Juanita? What keeps me going? You know, well, well, one thing I could say is adventure. <laughs> well, one thing. I, don't, I think I have more adventure in my life than if I had a nine-to-five job all these years, for, for instance. And I have good stories to tell, you know. <laughs> but I believe in it. And I keep, sometimes I feel as though I'd like to go into a cave and just because I get so disgusted with the way things go. But I'm in this world, and I guess as long as I live, I'll try to do the best I can and not to do the things that I think are the worst. Hey, did you bring with you the Outhouse Blues? Yes, I did. Explain what the Outhouse Blues is before you read it. Well, the Outhouse Blues I wrote many years ago when we lived in New Mexico. And I'm always having conversations like this. And I was trying to distill in a way that was not too preachy why I was doing, I'm doing, we were doing what we were doing. And so this is what came out. Well, I went out to the country to live a simple life, get away from all that concrete and avoid some of that strife, get off the backs of poor folks, stop supporting Uncle Sam and all that stuff he's putting down like bombing Vietnam. Oh, but it ain't easy, especially on a chilly night, when I beat it to the outhouse with my trusty dim flashlight. The seat is absolutely frigid, not a BTU of heat. That's when I think the simple life is not for us elite. Well, I try to grow my own food, competing with the bugs. I even make my own soap and my own ceramic mugs. I figure that the less I buy, the less I compromise with Standard Oil and ITT and those other gouging guys. Oh, but it ain't easy to leave my cozy bed to make it with my flashlight to that air-conditioned shed. When the seat's so cold, it takes away that freedom ecstasy. That's when I fear the simple life maybe wasn't meant for me. Well, I cook my food on a wood stove and heat with wood also, though when my parents left the South, I said, this has got to go. But I figure that the best way to say all folks are my kin is try to live so I don't take nobody's pound of skin. Oh, but it ain't easy when it's rainy and there's mud to put on my old bathrobe and walk out in that crud. I look out through the open door and see a distant star and sometimes think this simple life is taking things too far. But then I get to thinking, if we're ever going to see the end of that old con game, the change has got to start with me. Quit wheeling and quit dealing to be a leader in any band, and it appears the best way is to get back to the land. If I produce my own needs, I know what's going down. I'm not quite so footsie with those Wall Street pimps in town. Because let me tell you something, though it may not be good news. If some folks win, you better know somebody's got to lose. So I guess I'll have to cast my lot with those who are opting out. And even though on freezing nights I will have my nagging doubts, long as I talk the line I do and spout my way out views, I'll keep on using the outhouse and singing the outhouse blues. <laughs> Juanita Nelson lives in western Massachusetts, below the taxable income line, so her dollars won't support any military activity. She and her late husband, Wally Nelson, started living that commitment to nonviolence in 1948. Juanita was 85 when we talked with her. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. 
Today we're talking with folks we're calling peace elders, some people over the age of 80 who are still very active in their support of peace and nonviolence. If you lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and ever attended or came upon any event that promoted peacemaking, you'd find a little bespectacled gray-haired woman there named Ruth Ember, for sure. In fact, it wouldn't be unusual for Ruth to slowly climb onto the stage and grab a microphone to recite an original peace poem or song. Social justice and peace activism has been part of her life for as long as she can remember, which she admits is going back pretty far to her 1920s and 30s childhood in New York City where she grew up. She spoke with Carol Boss. I think it started the way all kids start. You want to you want things to be fair. And uh, that's what I learned at an early age. It should be fair. And then I learned that you have to work at it. So do you remember a a, a story um, from your childhood where that that really stood out to you? One of my favorites was one that uh, my Aunt Ethel told. She was waiting online somewhere I think at a cashier's in a department store or something like that. And uh, somebody cut into the line and somebody else immediately said, that's not fair. And then this little old Jewish lady said, I I wish this were television because hand gestures go with it. (laughs) But she said, fair, what's fair? Under capitalism can be fair? By the time I heard the story, I could appreciate it and enjoy it. But it was inspirational, too, you know. As a Jewish person, um, where did you stand um, in regards to the Second World War? Well, you know, despite the history of pacifism in my family. Uh, They all supported World War II, uh, and I did too at the time. My mother's family, most of them were still in Europe, and my mother was close to them. The time came when we realized we found out that they had all been annihilated. And I remember my mother crying on her bed in the middle of the day, just going off by herself and crying. And what she told me was that she was alone now. She had no family, no family left. So we supported uh, World War II. We thought it was necessary. Later, I began to realize that maybe we didn't have to fight that war. Maybe if Hitler and Mussolini had been handled differently when they were trying to take power, 
maybe that wouldn't have been necessary. But by the time the war took place, there were no alternatives. Well, how did you and like-minded people respond to the, um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, there was no question that we didn't have to use the most deadly weapon with tremendous earth-shaking effects that affected people for years and years. That didn't have to be. We were opposed to that. So how did that, how did that opposition look? Um, were you would you call yourself an activist about that? In regards yeah, to that? yeah. By that time, I, I was involved in protests. Were you actually marching on the streets back then? Yeah, yeah. I remember marching at Foley Square, which is where the federal courthouse was in downtown Manhattan in New York. And I remember pushing my carriage, marching there. That was probably after the war. You know, here we are 60 years later, more than 60 years later, and, um, and there have been many wars and um, lots of building of uh, nuclear weapons, lots of development. So in some ways, maybe some things haven't changed and perhaps have gotten worse, many would say. Have you felt discouraged over the years and the decades? Oh, yes. You know, after a while, you keep crusading, marching, demonstrating, writing, phoning for the same causes, and it can get discouraging, but I've always uh, been encouraged, and my spirits revived seeing young people participating in the same protest. So it goes on. I wrote a poem about that, as a matter of fact. This is called Circles. <clears throat> Young, strong, and determined, we marched in the 40s, our slogans resounding for justice and truth. Free speech, join the union, no nuclear weapons. We believed in the future. We believed in ourselves. We won some. We lost some. The struggle goes on. In the 50s, we parents were pushing our strollers as we circled again for freedom of speech. We can't let McCarthy take our liberties from us, our passion for freedom conquered our fear. We won some, we lost some. The struggle goes on. In the 60s, we marched in circles once more. Civil rights was our passion. We shall overcome. But the protests, they blurred into never-ending circles. I was tired, discouraged. What's the use? What's the point? 
We won some, we lost some. How long? For how long? Then I looked around, and the answer was clear. For there in the circle, one marcher stood out, young, strong, and determined. My teenage daughter had joined in the circle, had made her voice count. We win some, we lose some. The struggle goes on. So that's really, um, it's it's a a poem of hope, isn't it, for you? Oh, yes. You know, you think of many people in their 80s. Yes, you can go to marches and you'll see people on the streets, but, you know, some folks can't do that anymore. Right. Uh, But most of us can make phone calls. And most of us, can contact our congresspeople and other elected officials. It really makes a difference. When uh, they hear from you, they count up the number of messages that they got pro and con on a particular issue. And nowadays, with the internet and email, you can keep up with these things. You can sign petitions on the internet. All of these things you can find out about. You feel that your efforts over the years, over the decades, have um, made a difference? Yeah, I I think they do. Um, We can see a lot of changes in our world. We haven't solved all the problems, and the struggle does have to go on now as ever. You know, there's a a quote that I carry around with me all the time, Uh, and it's a 2,000-year-old Hebrew text from Rabbi Tarpon, and the translation I have here is... It is not up to you to complete the task, but neither are you free to desist from it. So I interpret that as I can't fix the world. I can't make everything right, but I can't stop from trying. Mm -hmm. I have to keep on doing it because that was, that's what gives my life meaning. What would be a, a recent action for peace or social justice that you've participated in? Well, I'm active in the Raging Grannies. They're an international organization that started in Canada many years ago. I don't remember. We sing. We sing and we write songs um, about peace and about uh, health care, providing education for all. We sing traditional peace songs and mostly we sing granny songs. We write them ourselves and we write our songs to familiar melodies. I I brought some of the songs that I wrote. 
We demonstrate throughout the year, write lots of letters too. We march and call, and through it all, our victories are few. But as we start another year, we know what we must do. Together we must struggle on and love each other too. Ruth Ember, 83, at the time of her interview with Carol Boss, a member of the Raging Grannies and a fixture in the peace and justice scene in Albuquerque, New Mexico. After our break, an 87-year-old doctor and former Nobel Peace Prize recipient talks about his prescription for survival. In fact, that's the name of the book he released in 2008. More after this. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. We're calling today's program Peace Elders, as we're visiting with citizens, all well into their 80s, who continue to place peace work at the center of their lives. Next, a man who, at 87, wrote a book recounting his path to a Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. Bernard Laun is a doctor who's known as the original developer of the cardiac defibrillator around 1960. But Laun also became deeply involved in the drive to reduce nuclear weapon arsenals, forming Physicians for Social Responsibility and the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He spoke to us from his home in Newton, Massachusetts, about what's kept him active in this issue still today at the age of 87. What's keeping me going is outrage, anger, that we have so created a world that is going to be more and more unlivable for next generations, for our children and grandchildren. Life is a legacy. We have a a brief passage, and we have to make it a little better rather than a little worse for those who follow. We haven't done so. What has staying active on issues of peace and social justice added to uh, to your senior years, though, the quality of your life even? Well, I think as a doctor, I know that if one is engaged, both physically and intellectually, one stays younger. You don't ward off age. You merely slow down the process of its advance. 
and uh, and I think engagement means to interact with other people, and other people is what gives you the the excitement and the energy and the joie de vivre. <laughs> when you think about the current state of affairs, why is it so important to revisit the details of your story? Well, in, for a number of reasons. First, the philosophic reason that we live effectively in the future if we have well metabolized and digested the past. Without the past, we don't really have guidelines. And if we don't know the past, as George Santayana, the American philosopher, said, you're forced to repeat it. And Americans have made really uh, sort of uh, amnesiac about the past. And therefore, we keep on repeating the same mistake. I'm convinced if we had analyzed the nature of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and what happened there, we would not have had Vietnam. If we knew the culture of the Vietnamese people, their history, and what they were struggling for, and the intensity of their nationalism, we would not have the war in Vietnam. And if we didn't have the war in Vietnam, we wouldn't have the quagmire of Iraq. And if we didn't have the quagmire of Iraq, we probably would avoid future wars that will take our treasure, the life of our youth, and make America a less livable place. Now, the book... Prescription for Survival deals with five years, five years of the Cold War. But the Cold War shaped America today. Americans don't know about it. So I'm urging that this be reexamined. And and the book is not only a, a memoir, it's an important adventure story. Here an American doctor uh, makes a pact with the devil, namely a Russian doctor, and we're out to stop the drive toward the brink against the intoning of Washington, the accusation of American media that we're KGB dupes, that we're communist France, that we're not quite terrorists, but we're weak-minded. I want to come back to that era that you're describing from the book, but I also want to come back to the current international climate later. But let's go back to 1961. You were already 40 years old. And internationally, hey, you known. keep on reminding me how old I, how old I was. I'm trying to keep young, and you are forcing me to grow old. No, 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 nobody's nobody's disputing uh, your your ability to stay young. I can tell you that for sure. But yeah. at that stage, and the reason I make that point is that at 40, you were internationally known for your achievements as a cardiologist. But you wrote in the book that the idea of nuclear war held little interest to you at that time. So how did how, exactly. how did you get from that point? I was at that time in my life interested in one big issue aside from my family, sudden cardiac death. Sudden cardiac death was the leading cause of fatality in the world. An American was dying every 90 seconds from it, every 90 seconds around the clock. And the American Medical Association, doctors, the NIH were all indifferent to it because they judged it as a heart attack, massive heart attack with no heart left and there was nothing can be done about it, an act of God short. My work led me to believe that this was an electrical abnormality of the heart rhythm, ventricular fibrillation, an arrhythmia that leads to death, and therefore reversible. So it was an accident, a reversible accident. Hearts to go to die. 
And I felt obsessed because I knew every minute that we delay, another person died in America and many more the world around. At that point, somebody invited me to go to listen to a lecture by a Britisher who had won a Nobel Peace Prize. And he lectured about nuclear threat. He says, none of you will be around by the year 2000. And I took a big gulp. It sounded crazy, but the more he talked this Jeremiah-like lecture, the more I was persuaded he was right. The multiplication of nuclear weapons, their delivery system, and the whole uh, demonization of the other. We, uh, the Russians, the Russians of us, uh, led to no choice but self-destruct. So suddenly the parameter of thinking was changed. Yes, we face sudden death, but it's not going to be cardiac, it's going to be nuclear, and i got to do something about it. All right, so you formed Physicians for Social Responsibility within a year there, and to review, one of the high-profile first steps was to publish articles that detailed the human toll of a nuclear strike on the Boston area, right? Exactly. And we published five articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was awesome what we found. We did research, and we found out of Boston, three million people, one million would be killed instantly. One million would be fatally injured and die a horrendous death from, uh, from fire, from radiation, from trauma, you name it, from immune disease, infection, bleeding, and the doctor would have nothing to offer. There wouldn't be enough doctors. Out of Boston's 6,000 physicians then practicing, only 1,000 would remain alive. But they had no resources, nothing, no drugs, no surgical instruments, no way to travel, no electricity, no garbage disposal, but dead bodies about them and people pleading to be done away with. The doctor's role will then be practicing euthanasia. So we said, this is the situation that is going to happen. Nuclear war, there is no place to hide. And I guess it was very important at that time to create a scenario within the United States. Yes. At that time, the United States was going underground, burrowing underground like rats, you know, going underground. There's safety and shelters, and the Kennedy administration encouraged it because it had nothing else to offer. And we proved with our study that the least safe place to be in case of nuclear war is an underground shelter. And we based it on the models, sad tragedies of Dresden, Hamburg, Tokyo, which were firebombed, firestorms which exhaust oxygen and asphyxiate people underground. So it wasn't a safe place to be. And one of the interesting consequences of our study, there were many, was one, the shelter craze stopped. Hmm. It stopped. It's like a switch. You turned it off. Nobody was going to shelters. Within a year of your forming in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis brought the United States and Soviet Union to the brink of nuclear war. And the nuclear threat was really at the center of John F. Kennedy's short run as president. Kennedy had both back-channel and direct contact with Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier at the time. Talking with the so-called enemy continues to be a dilemma for politicians today, doesn't it? It does. And uh, we... I mean, you will not talk to terrorists. We will not talk to Iran. We will not talk to the Taliban. But as Mandela said, you talk to enemies, 
and make them your partners. You have to begin to talk. The moment you begin to talk to another human being, you immediately find commonalities. And those commonalities then are enlarged, hypertrophied, made tangible, and you begin to compromise because, after all, look, we and the Russians were in the same boat. If a hole in the boat developed on his side of the boat, you wouldn't go in tra-la-la. You're in the same boat. You're together. So the point is, if there's a hole in his side of the boat, you better bail. Speaking of reaching out, eventually your organization began to reach out to fellow doctors in the Soviet Union, principally with Soviet cardiologist Evgeny Chazov. First of all, why did you believe doctors could have an impact on such a high-stakes playing field as the Cold War? Did you feel like your profession would somehow cover you from the charge of being politically motivated? Well, it didn't work quite that way. What led me to to engage doctors is because I was a doctor. So if I was going to do something, I can do it as doctors. But having said that, doctors had a special opportunity because doctors, there is no leader in the world that doesn't have a doctor. And doctors of the world are a sort of a international secret society. You know, we speak the same language. We have the same traditions. We have the same values. We have the same science. We write the same articles. And we were more immune from being attacked as, you know, as uh, shallow opportunists who have this and this, who don't know nothing. After all, ultimately, the public trusts us. It has to. And the doctor has to earn that trust. It's not a one-way street. But essentially, the public in America, in Russia, in Albania, in Poland, in China, trust their doctors. So if we talk of a danger, they're more likely to listen and engage in the political process. And that fundamental thesis that emerges in prescription for survival, and profound and very meaningful today, is the fact that history is forged by you and me, by ordinary folks, by the pawns on the chessboard, not the kings and the queens and the rooks and the knights and the bishops. It's ordinary people who make history. Our guest on Peace Talks Radio is Dr. Bernard Laun, co-founder of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Laun released the book Prescription for Survival in 2008, detailing his efforts to stop the threat of nuclear war. Well, Dr. Laun, we won't have time to detail all the accomplishments of your organization, obviously, in the book, though. But, but help us understand a few ways that you really felt you had some impact in slowing the spread of nuclear weapons in the 1980s. Well, uh, firstly, we brought the lesson of what nuclearism was all about to an enormous public. We had children's petition, Reagan and Brezhnev, please permit us to grow up, 300,000 kids. We had a million doctor-signed petitions. We had meetings galore. You name it, we had meetings and discussions. So we roused public opinion, number one. Number two, we mobilized doctors more than ever have been mobilized. We got 200,000 doctors to join us from zero in 1980 to 1986-87. 
uh, we also penetrated to upper echelons of the political establishment, especially in the Soviet Union, regrettably not in the United States. And we were able to persuade them that there was no win situation. More important than all those, we came through with a formula. And the formula was called the medical prescription. And we said, forget negotiating. Americans and Russians should not be negotiating. Why not? Because they had 3,700 negotiating sessions and the arms race was accelerating. What was wrong with it? We did an analysis. What was wrong with it is they were secret and they got the wrong people to negotiate, military types. You know, supposing you want to outlaw boxing, would you get boxing referees in secret to engage in how to outlaw boxing? No. We say, let us change the process. Let us engage in unilateral initiatives. Let a country stop nuclear testing or do something very decisive. Let people then force the opponent, the adversary, to reciprocate and then call in the experts to deal with the details. Experts should never be called in to talk about politics. They should be called in to talk about details. And that we persuaded Gorbachev. And I talked with him personally three hours about it. And I talked to many of his brain trusts, the, the other doctors. And we persuaded him that was the course. And that's the course that Gorbachev followed. So it sounds like you made more progress on the Soviet side of the equation than the United States side of the equation. Absolutely. You write that in the West you were accused of fraternizing with evil and being KGB dupes. And in the East you were suspected of being CIA decoys. But the... Uh, U.S. government, NATO countries, Western media were, what, overall dismissive of your efforts? Let me give you one example. When we got the Nobel Prize, NATO, NATO had a campaign led by Prime Minister of Germany, Kohl, to rescind the Nobel Prize. The U.S. Senate passed a resolution asking the Nobel Committee to rescind the prize. The Wall Street Journal told the Nobel Committee to get out of business because they failed morally. So what did that feel like, to have the U.S. government uh, petition against your prize? That was terrible, absolutely terrible, to know that my country, which is the greatest country, should take such a backward, as a reactionary, unthinkable position on this issue. But I got a funny note from Linus Pauling, the greatest scientist of America. And the, line, and the letter I got from him is, Laun, exclamation mark, one line. Don't be upset. They didn't come when I got the price either, meaning referring to the American ambassador, American consulate officials didn't come to his Nobel ceremonies. So is that about, in your mind the government being uh, upset or concerned with citizens, quote, meddling in international politics, or is there something else at work? I think that is the key element, that government, whether Republican or Democrat or communist or fascist or whatever, they don't like ordinary citizens to engage in the process that they think is wholly owned by them. And citizen diplomacy, we proved, 
is is a very effective tool and very important that people not grow indifferent and insular and bow out of the process. We're still, as Americans, are apolitical. Every four years they genuflect, but they're out of it, and that's sad. That's why we have so many problems. Dr. Lowne, despite your efforts and the efforts of others working this issue, the U.S. and Russia still have huge stockpiles of weapons. Other developing nations have seen the need to develop nuclear weapons to be taken seriously on the international stage. I would think that someone who cares as much about this as you do would also feel a little heartsick much of the time that you couldn't do more. Well, I, I say that, but I have a different spin, and that spin is to preserve myself, and that is we accomplished something. There were 68,000 nuclear weapons. Now there are 26 thousand. The world is not threatened with instant extinction. We've already lost and continue to lose people who actually were around in 1945 when the only two nuclear weapons were used by the U.S. at the end of World War II. Do you think today's young people really understand or are even hearing about what these weapons can do? No, no, no. The whole thing, what you learn as a teacher is repetition, repetition, and more repetition. And every generation has to learn anew the realities. So the level of misinformation and ignorance is abysmal. That's why peace organizations, peace activists, radio stations such as you are conducting right to this minute are vital to the health and political health of America. Let's talk about this. Your book calls on readers to think about what's happened to the notion of peace. You write that the uh, very word has become vacuous and that the perception of a pacifist is that of a dreaming do-gooder out of touch with reality. What ideas would you have about reestablishing the honor of peace work? Well, the honor of peace work has to be established, I think, uh, through a back door. And the back door is getting a real view of what militarism entails. Militarism has brought the United States nearly to its knees. The present economic crisis is in large part related to that. The Cold War, for example, we teach Americans that we won the Cold War, Reagan won the Cold War. Ridiculous. That is a complete fabrication. We lost the Cold War. The Russians lost it worse. We lost it. Look, we spent $11 trillion dollars our children are not educated. They are on the bottom, in the world, in the industrialized world today, in math and science. We have schools that are a disgrace. We have healthcare that is dysfunctional. We have inner cities that are ex- imploding. What's going on? We are spending more on the military than the whole world combined. Let me ask you to go a little bit deeper than... Um the blame on governments or the military-industrial complex, what's at the root of our own individual psyches as citizens that sustains the maintenance of a nuclear arsenal, do you think? Well, I think that this is an argument we have had from the very beginning in the doctor's peace movement. There were those who were very convinced that the problem was individual that we had to address the psychologic factors that enable us to accept such gross evil 
as war, violence, mass murder. Uh, but there were some of us who were arguing differently. We were arguing that systemic problems, such as militarism, poverty, lack of equity in markets, the North-South divide, the fact that we have been living still in the Christopher Columbus era. Christopher Columbus proved to Europeans you don't have to work hard to be rich. There was plenty of wealth out there that you could rob, steal, appropriate. This is what the world is like today. But we are doing the appropriating, and Americans have never faced up. Neither you, nor I, nor anybody has faced up to the fact that we're appropriating the wealth of most of the world. And we live in debt, and we live in luxury, and we live in guilt. And we live in guilt, so we don't want to think about real issues. So, for example, given the chance, what would you say to a gathering of, quote, average Americans who believe in the need for a strong defense, who believe in threats from terrorists or other nuclear powers, to get them instead to insist that their government dismantle its arsenal and stop developing new weapons? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have conflated so many issues that it makes no sense. No intelligent answer is possible. Because... You say defense and terrorism and military and weapons. We are building, well, let me take one at a time. We are building weapons now to fight the Cold War with the Russians. A B-1 bomber, what value has it got against terrorists? You know what a B-1 bomber costs? More than a billion. You know what that means? 750,000 Pell Grants for young people. Which is more important for the safety, defense, security of the United States to be able to compete in the global market by having intelligent young people who have a college education? So that's one as regard weapons. Defense is good, but do we have to spend a trillion dollars on it? Do we? We have lived through most of United States history without a military of any significance. Yet we were able to fight World War II as most successfully as ever. How come? We had no army, we had no significant navy, no air force, yet we fought and won. Why don't you analyze that? What I was describing was sort of a mindset, uh, which I think you can accept is something that's adopted by a large percentage of Americans. I would say to them, and I believe in their intelligence, and I believe in their good sense, and I believe that they want to live a good life and bequeath a good life, that your children's education is more important for the safety and security of the United States. Furthermore, terrorists are not something you fight with the military. The British did not bomb Belfast to get rid of the IRA. The Germans didn't bomb the minor brigade in Munich to get rid of their terrorists. The Italians didn't bump their, their terrorists in Milan. We are the first one who begin to bomb people to get rid of terrorists. That's insane. That's a, the military should be out of it, totally. Terrorists are a police action. You require intelligence. You require international cooperation. You require the study of the basis for terrorism. Why is it developed now? Why didn't it exist 50 years ago? Why is it picking on the United States? What are the issues? I'm a doctor. What do I do as a doctor? Do I go in and cut off a limb? Do I amputate? Or do I make an analysis of why is his arm blue now? Oh, he has a blocked artery. Okay, we'll free it up. And 
and we go in immediately, not with a scalpel, but with an axe. Does that make sense? Dr. Lowne, you do end your memoir on an optimistic note. So where do you actually see encouraging signs today? I see encouraging signs in the fact that what I learned from our experience. Here I'm a, a doctor and a small little human being in, a, in Newton, Massachusetts. And we were able to start a movement with others and affect history. That gives me enormous hope and a surge of optimism. Secondly, I, whenever I speak to people, it's very easy to persuade them on the logic and the necessity uh, of what we're trying to do. And I get hope from another fact. If you look at, as a doctor, in 1900, life expectancy was 50 years in America. Now it's 78. We have added on 28 years. Global life expectancy is now 60 years. Look, look at the important achievements of science and technology. Look what we can now provide education for everybody. We can provide food for everybody. We can provide health care for everybody. Look, if we merely took two months of our military budget and gave it to clean up the global water supply, we'd reduce disease by 80% in the world. Where are our priorities? And people can be persuaded. But it can be done. It must be done. We have no choice. 1985 Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Bernard Laun. His book, Prescription for Survival, A Doctor's Journey to End Nuclear Madness, is published by BK Publishers. A link to his site is also on ours. You can go to peacetalksradio.com for more about our show today. That's peacetalksradio.com where you can hear this program again, order a CD, sign up for a podcast, or our monthly newsletter. You can actually hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution going back to 2003. It's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to support the nonprofit work of Good Radio Shows Incorporated, which produces this program and protects some airtime and web space for talk about peacemaking. Go to peacetalksradio.com and follow the link to contribute for details. We really could use your help. In addition to support from contributing listeners like you, we also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico. Thanks also to KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Our theme was written and performed by Ali Adelman. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for doing your part to support Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.